Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. State revenues for school funding are drying up, and policymakers say Wyoming's education future is uncertain. It is a great worry to me personally about what we're going to do in the years ahead. We will discuss energy independence, fracking, coal technology research. We will dig deep into the politics of policy and energy. You know, every president since Nixon has said this, but it's, it's a myth. More and more public libraries in Wyoming are starting seed libraries that lend seeds alongside books. It's like the library is, really wants to get books into the hands of people. The seed library wants to get seeds into the hands of people. And Wyoming's delegation is hopeful that major budget legislation will get passed and a conversation with U.S. House candidate Tim Stubson. Join us for Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Thanks to a recent energy boom, Wyoming ranks among the top K-12 spenders per student. But as oil and gas prices drop and coal companies declare bankruptcy, the Cowboy State's school funding future is in jeopardy. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports. Join me in helping to keep Gillette strong. More than 100 are gathered at a Friends of Coal rally in the Gillette Auditorium. The event feels part pep rally, part vigil for the region's ailing coal industry. Jonathan Downing of the Wyoming Mining Association has a message for coal miners in the crowd. We wouldn't have the schools in this state but for the taxes that were paid on behalf of your hard work. And for that, every single school in the state of Wyoming in the last 10 years has been built with coal revenues. And you ought to congratulate yourselves on that. You can clap too. Coley's bonuses have bankrolled $3 billion in school building, and Wyoming is spending an average of more than $17,000 per student. The national average is less than $12,000. 70% of state revenue comes from production of oil, gas, and Gillette coal. But that revenue is disappearing. Mark Shrum was a technician at the Buckskin coal mine. I was just laid off on March 4th um, for the first time ever in my life, not able to go and find another job. But Shrum doesn't want to leave town. When he moved here nine years ago, his son Jarrett was at the bottom of his class. Now 17, he's a straight-A junior at Campbell County High School. Seventh grader Cody is in his school's gifted and talented program and travels the state for science competitions. You see a lot of money spent on the students from the technology that's present in the classrooms, the nice buildings. It's one of the primary reasons that we're doing everything we can to stay here. The Campbell County School District runs a children's museum and a mental health clinic. Kids can take swim lessons in the district's aquatic center, and the state is funding construction of a brand new high school. And you also see your teachers being paid well, which keeps good teachers here. Like Shrum's wife, Tracy, who's a kindergarten teacher. In the past dozen years, Wyoming's teachers' salaries have risen more than any other state's. Rookie teachers earn $43,000 on average, compared to about $36,000 nationwide. Where we're in a tremendous setting, not only for her professionally, but for our kids academically. Unfortunately, we're seeing the first major concerns in my lifetime about the funding for the state of Wyoming and its education. Funding wasn't this good when Shrum himself was a student here in the 80s. 
But beginning in 1995, the Campbell County School District was lead plaintiff in several Wyoming Supreme Court cases, which told lawmakers to come up with a new model to fund the state's schools adequately and equitably. The Campbell decisions essentially doubled the amount of state resources we were putting into education and in fact some ways more than doubled it. Mary Kay Hill is Governor Matt Mead's policy director. We took on additional responsibilities. Fully funded transportation and special education, which no other state in the nation does. With each court ruling, Wyoming's approach evolved. Schools were funded to provide smaller class sizes and tutors. Hill says none of this would be possible if Wyoming weren't the country's leading coal producer and energy exporter. It has been somewhat serendipitous that as we have had increased legal mandates, we've also seen increased revenue to match our capacity to meet those. It is a great worry to me personally about what we're going to do in the years ahead. Even with all this money put into education, the state remains in the middle of the pack in most measures of academic achievement. Students' ACT and NAEP scores have not risen along with funding. But Campbell County Superintendent Boyd Brown says he's seen improvements in Gillette. Um, Over the 28 years I've been in the district, teachers work harder than they've ever worked. They try to give those students as much support and help as they can to get them where they need to go. In March, the legislature cut K-12 funding by more than a percent. So Campbell County and districts across Wyoming are trimming budgets. Brown will cut at least 20 educators and a program that gets elementary school kids active outside. He worries layoffs will drive more students and funding out of town. We sure are uh, feeling a sense of anxiety for all those people that have lost their jobs. To help a little, Brown is reminding struggling families about free and reduced-price lunch applications and the district's mental health clinic. More than 2% of Wyoming workers lost their jobs last year. As the schools cut programs and staff, Mark Shrum's family makes cuts of its own. Got to be very conscious about the money we're spending and what we're doing. You know, we've been doing things with amenities that are very nice to have, but you can kind of do without once you once you figure it out again. With no coal jobs in sight, Shrum is pursuing a special education master's degree and a teaching credential online. He wants a career that won't go away, and he figures Gillette will always need teachers. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When senators return to Washington on Monday, they'll resume work on an energy and water spending bill, which is important to Wyoming, but has been stalled over a foreign policy dispute. But Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that Wyoming lawmakers are hoping it marks a new day for handling spending bills in a timely fashion, though at least one hurdle remains. Remember the Washington spending battles over the past few years? The government shutdown is likely the most memorable. But every fall there's a spending battle, usually an 11th-hour bill to keep the government's lights on for a few weeks, and then an agreement to fund the government at the last minute. That annual dysfunction angers Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi, who chairs the Budget Committee. He says that's why he's ecstatic Republican leaders are bringing up the bill to fund the Interior and Energy Departments now. This is the earliest that any bills have ever been brought up, and the leader promised that we would do them in consecutive order, all 12 of them, uh, if possible. We're running into some snags with it, but you always do when you're passing bills. So um, if, if we do that, then we aren't faced with the shutdown on October 1st, and everybody knows what they can plan on. We'll get back to the snags in a bit. Enzi is a proponent of changing the budget process from one year to two years like they do in Wyoming. 
He says if you look at Congress's track record, there's really no other option. But in the last four decades, we've only covered all 12 bills four times. <laughs> so it's not the habit, but it's a habit we ought to get into. And if, if 12 in one year is too many to do, we can break that down to six in each year. But each six would be for a two-year period. Again, the agencies could plan a lot more on what's going to happen. Last year, the House passed the bulk of its spending bills, only to see them sit untouched in the Senate. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis says she's excited the Senate is finally functioning again. I'm thrilled to see the Senate debating appropriations bills, given the fact that it has been a long time since they um, debated, had opportunities to amend um, these bills. It's just a breath of fresh air. But this is an election year, and Lummis says she's not holding her breath. She says it's likely they won't pass anything until the last minute. We've never gotten through all the appropriations bills uh, the entire eight years that I've been here. So I think um, my expectation bar is set pretty low uh, that we will get through them all. In the past, Republicans would attach policy writers to spending bills to try to block the EPA and other agencies from implementing new regulations. But this year, there doesn't seem to be the appetite. Lummis says all the policy writers they got passed in the last spending fight were stripped out at the last minute because of demands from the White House. Um, I think it's better for us to turn our attention uh, to processes and to what we can accomplish in 2017 uh, rather than spend a lot of floor time uh, passing appropriations bills uh, that are not going to see the light of day. Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso says it's easier for the GOP to cut funding for an agency through the regular spending process than it is to try and block regulations and be required to overturn a veto. I think it's important to actually get appropriation bills to the president's desk. You need 60 votes on those things, so in many of these you need uh, by some level of bipartisan uh, support. We have put on the president's desk issues uh, that go after his uh, clean climate plan. Uh, he's vetoed that. We've gone after him on waters of the United States. He's vetoed that. And we don't have the 67 votes to override a presidential veto. Now we're going after it on the funding. The bill before the Senate provides money for the University of Wyoming, which licenses Wyoming Public Radio, for an economic development program that's focused on rural states like Wyoming. It increases the program by about $11 million over what the president wanted for the program. The legislation also about triples the president's request for funding the Interior Department and the Bureau of Reclamation on Water Issues, which are vital out west. Still, the spending bill has gotten tied up. And this ought to be the easy one to pass. That's Senator Enzi again. Democratic leaders have blocked the bill because of an amendment they fear the GOP will offer that could derail the president's Iran nuclear deal. The amendment, sponsored by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, would ban the White House from buying heavy water from Iran. See, heavy water is needed for nuclear programs, and under the agreement, Iran needs to get rid of its heavy water, which practically means shipping it to Russia or the United States. Enzi says he's not surprised the bill hit a snag. Well, there are always some people that think that they've got an amendment that would be critical to the United States and they're not, they're not willing to put it off at all, uh, even if it's going to stop something that's really critical like the, like the appropriations. The Energy and Water Spending Bill faces a test vote on Monday. If it passes, Wyoming lawmakers say it will mark a new day for doing business in Washington. If it's blocked, the reality may set in that not much work is going to get done during this election year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
When we come back, we'll have a conversation with U.S. House candidate Tim Stubson of CASPA. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. State Representative Tim Stubson is the third-ranking member of the Wyoming House of Representatives and a member of the legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee. His next move is to try and replace U.S. Representative Cynthia Lummis and become Wyoming's next congressman. Stubson is also a Casper attorney. He joins us to discuss a couple of key issues, starting with the declining coal market. As you look at what's happened in this state and it may be the downturn in, in specifically that particular area, is there anything that can change, anything you really realistically can do to fix that? I think there is, and it's interesting. I had a, a debate with a supporter from here in Laramie, actually, about that issue not too long ago. And um, certainly, uh, there's two components to the coal issue. One is regulatory, and of course, you're hearing all the candidates talk about that. But the other is market. And, and I believe there are some things we can do about that as well. Uh, so step one, you do have to, whether you're looking at the clean haze or the regional haze rule, the clean power plan, those sorts of things need to be rolled back in order to make uh, coal competitive. But the other thing we need to do is really recognize the market that we're in. And there are some things we can do to burn coal cleaner and, they, and we can do it in an economic way. But the, the gap is and has been moving it from where we know how to do it in a lab, to being able to do it on a commercial level. And we in Wyoming, we've invested very heavily in some of this technology, some of this research. It's a matter of uh, a federal government not just unilaterally turning its back on one of our most available sources of energy. And uh, and if we could have that, incentivize private investment, do some, uh, even have some public investment in that transition from lab to commercial, uh, we could change the game as far as coal is concerned. Going to the rolling back part of this, it, it, does that seem realistic? I know you're going to try very hard and everybody from Wyoming would, but at the end of the day, I mean, do you need to come up with an alternative plan to deal with this? Because there's a great chance you can't roll back some of this stuff. The uh, I guess I'm – in some respects, I'm an optimist. And I I think that when people around the country see – the impacts of these decisions on their own bottom line, when they see it in their own uh, power bill, uh, they're going to realize the true cost of the uh, administration's decision with respect to some of these these rules. And so I, I actually think you can get it done because you reach out not only to the energy producing states, you reach out to those folks who uh, are far enough, uh, see far enough to recognize that their constituents are going to be hurt by increasing uh, uh, increasing costs of their power. But, uh, I mean, a backup plan is another good thing. And I think uh, part of that is expanding markets, not just in the U.S., but in other places. And, you know, again, at the state level, we've been working very hard on that with uh, folks in the Far East like Taiwan who are ready. They are ready to accept Wyoming coal, but we've got to get it from here to there. And part of that, I think, is a federal role of stepping in and saying, you know, a state like Wyoming has the right and the authority to sell its products and commodities even if you have to go through other states. Yeah, the ports issue seems to be a tough one to overcome too. It, it is. And, and I mean, you see, it's really funny because one of the decisions in Oregon, one of the things that scuttled uh, one of the, the ports there was it wasn't actually, it didn't have anything to do with the port itself. It was a permit from Oregon to repair a dock at the port. And Oregon used that sort of as an excuse to scuttle the whole project. So it's certainly a challenge. Um, 
But I think, again, I think we can get there. There are significant uh, factors on the coast where people recognize the important jobs that are associated with those coal ports. The folks uh, that want the coal, the Taiwanese and others, are willing to pull. I think if you put all those forces together, you can get it done. Representative Stubson, do you have to also get some buy-in from the industry? Because one of the criticisms you hear for years is that unlike oil and gas, which has a whole group that is looking at new technologies and that sort of thing, you don't get that from the coal industry. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think um, coal may have been slow to react, for sure. Um, But they have been invested in some of these efforts to ensure that you can uh, utilize CO2 off the flue stream, some of those sorts of things. For example, the ITC that we're in the middle of developing up in Campbell County right now, which will really set forth a laboratory for folks to work on some of these issues. ITC being? Uh, <laughs> integrated Test Center? Yes, <laughs> Integrated Test Center. Um, and, and, and really part of that has been a coming together of a number of coal companies and energy companies and the state of Wyoming to make that work. So you are seeing some of that cooperation in the background, and I think um, to good effect. I I guess I should ask your thoughts on climate change and and this whole issue. I mean, where do you stand on this? Is this something to be concerned about, and and should we address it in some way? You know, I'm I'm one of the guys that I'm not sure. We know that there's been climate change throughout history, and so we would expect to see it. What impact um, man-made CO2 has on that? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I don't think, frankly, I know there's models and there's theories, but I don't think people have a good grasp on it. What we do know is the numbers put forward, even by the administration, say that actions like the Clean Power Plan barely, barely move the dial on what uh, global warming would be. And so, uh, what I what I do think is that the market demands us that we do something with CO2. There is, frankly, you can't just put the issue off the table because the markets demand you do something with CO2. And that's why I think we have to step in with some of these innovative technologies that we've seen right here at the University of Wyoming because it's going to make it much easier to sell our product. Tim Stubson visiting with us today as a state representative running for the U.S. House of Representatives. I want to ask you about health care. You've had your, your debates here in this state about Medicaid expansion. I'm just curious what you would do if you had the opportunity to vote on the Affordable Care Act. Do you, do you got it? Do you change it? What what would you do? You know, I think some of that's a matter of semantics. You change it, but you change it significantly. So it's probably gutting it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's there's aspects of it that have become part of the fabric of, of our healthcare system, including coverage of pre-existing conditions, uh, mobility of coverage, some of those things that I think people uh, widely agree with and would like to see continued. So I can see that. But what we do know that uh, the premiums that we see in this state have accelerated dramatically since the Affordable Care Act passed. And part of that problem is this sort of top-down, one-size-fits-all approach that we always see out of Washington, D.C. that fails to recognize that when you have 583,000 people, things are different. And uh, and so I would very much support uh, uh, a repeal of the ACA and replacement with something that makes more sense and gives more flexibility to uh, states to come up with their own solutions. For example, on Medicaid, uh, we uh, a block, more of a block grant on Medicaid, which allows would allow us to do the things we want to do, which is put cost control measures in place, uh, uh, would allow us to have a work requirement. Some of those things that the federal government frowns on right now, uh, we could do. Do you, if if you were to change the law, 
do you just change it like instantly or is there like a glide path in and out of things? Because there are a lot of people that would lose their insurance if if you just got rid of that law. Oh, I, I mean, you've got to be sensitive to that, certainly. You've got a number of people, especially in the state of Wyoming, on, on the exchange. And uh, you've got to recognize that and have a plan uh, for their continuing coverage because you're exactly right. You don't uh, frankly, what we we saw last time around was ignoring what we had assurances that people could, could keep the coverage that they wanted. We know that was not true, that people lost the coverage, uh, the coverage that they liked. They didn't get the option to keep it. So uh, I, we don't make that same mistake by when we make the changes. Uh, but like I said, you can do it in such a way that I think, um, and, and looking across state lines, that's that's a huge piece of this for the state of Wyoming. We have the highest healthcare costs of really anywhere else in the country. If we could move that risk across the country and uh, our premiums would reflect that, you would see instantaneous relief for the people of Wyoming and their premium rate. Tim Stubson, he is a state representative running for Congress. Uh, he, I'm sure can you can learn more about him on his website. Tim, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. America's coal industry is hurting. Bad. Thousands of workers have been laid off and a majority of the country's major coal companies have filed for bankruptcy. Coal production is at a 30-year low. To understand just how stark that drop-off is, Inside Energy's Jordan Wirfs-Brock tries an experiment. Okay, let's take coal production data from the Energy Information Administration and play a single musical note for each week. The higher the pitch of that note, the higher the coal production. This sound represents how much coal came out of the ground in coal's single best week ever, 24 million tons in February 2006. This sound is one of coal's worst weeks, 11 million tons in April 2016. A lot of coal, a little coal. If we string the sounds together, again with each note representing one week, it sounds like this audio history of U.S. coal at 10 weeks a second. Okay, in the 80s, we were coming off the 1970s energy crisis and the newly updated Clean Air Act. Production? Chugging along. It sounded like this. You can hear how coal's song is all over the place, some up weeks, some down weeks. Then, cheap, low-sulfur Wyoming coal burst onto the scene. During the 90s, production soared. Hear how the overall tone is higher than before? In the 2000s, America built tons of homes, which needed lots of electricity. Natural gas prices were high, making burning coal the most economic way to fuel the housing boom. And in 2008, coal reached a peak, averaging 23 million tons a week. Then everything changed. Natural gas took off and it was cheap. Old coal-fired power plants were retired and replaced with natural gas and renewables. Coal has been up and down since 2010, but you can hear more downs than ups. And in the past year,
it fell off a virtual cliff. Once again, here's coal production at its peak in 2008 and in the past six months. For coal, it's back to the 1980s. What took three decades to build up has taken a year to undo. For Inside Energy, I'm Jordan Werfsbrock. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. Coming up, we'll hear from our energy team on the policy and politics of energy. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Prices for coal, oil, and gas are all way down. Global concern over climate change is growing. We're adding more renewables into the mix. The way we produce and consume energy is changing, so there are some big decisions to be made on the future of energy in the U.S. Today, we're bringing you a special segment about the politics and policy of energy. Hi. I'm Stephanie Joyce, Wyoming Public Radio's energy and natural resources reporter. And I'm Lee Patterson, a reporter with Inside Energy. Hey, Lee, had you noticed that it's an election year? No, really? (laughs) Yeah, of course I've noticed. So that means that politicians are busy promising lots of things. Including promising lots of things when it comes to energy. Here's Hillary Clinton. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country. And Ted Cruz, who's just dropped out of the race. I don't believe that Washington should be picking winners and losers, and I think there should be no mandates and no subsidies whatsoever. And Bernie Sanders. We need to put an end to fracking, not only in New York and Vermont, but all over this country. So we wondered, if these politicians were actually elected and actually did, say, ban fracking or eliminate energy subsidies, what would the world look like? We wanted to know, are these good ideas or bad ideas? So we decided to ask the experts at a live event we held in Laramie in April. We invited four energy economists to weigh in on the presidential candidates' policy proposals, as well as proposals floated by Wyoming Governor Matt Mead. Rob Godby and Chuck Mason joined us from the University of Wyoming, Ian Lang from the Colorado School of Mines, and Tim Fitzgerald all the way from Texas. The rules were simple. Agree, disagree, why or why not. Sounds simple enough. So we started with one proposal that really hits home in Wyoming, where hundreds of coal miners have been laid off in recent months, and coal companies are declaring bankruptcy left and right. Hillary Clinton has proposed giving $30 billion to coal communities all over the country to help them transition away from coal. Rob Godby started us off. Yay. Full disclosure, I've actually worked with them on this, so... (laughs) Um, They're the only presidential campaign that's actually come and asked about it, though, so I did talk to them about it, but I'm a yay. And Tim? Uh, Yay. Pretty weak yay. Chuck? Okay, I'm going to give you an answer, but can we just get a clarification? Was that $30 billion or $3 billion? $30 billion. Uh, Then it's a capital no. It was before. It was just a little no. 
All right. And Ian, last but not least. Yay. So three yays, one nay. Chuck Mason was the lone dissenter. Why is that? Basically, he just thinks it's too much money. Almost half a million dollars for every coal miner employed in the U.S. today. I rather suspect that we could find far more creative ways to spend that cash. Okay, but there were three yays. So we let Rob Godby, the one who consulted with the Clinton campaign, weigh in for that side. So there are a couple things here. The first is, uh, this is a policy, you know, the, the decline of the coal industry. While it's currently being pushed by, you know, prices of natural gas, in the future it's going to be carbon regulation. That is a social choice. And being a national and international social choice, I don't think that that should fall on a, a narrow set of shoulders. And so I do think it morally that we should probably think about uh, how to help these people through transitions, which has been a big discussion in the uh, policy debate. And I'm going to summarize Godby's second point because it was a little lengthy. But basically what he said is if we're going to put policies in place to deal with climate change, then we have to help the communities that those policies will hurt. Otherwise, it's really hard to build political consensus. You really can't afford to have like a coalition of people that lose so much that they just won't agree. And we've already seen what that kind of brings in this country. Okay, so giving $30 billion to coal communities is a policy that the majority of our energy economists can get behind. Moving on to the Republicans' ideas. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is make America great again. It's an important part of it. And that's definitely a line we've heard over and over again. We definitely have heard that before. (laughs) So what do our panelists think about Trump's support for energy independence? Here's Chuck Mason. Irrelevant, but that would be, oh, we're on TV, I better not say this. No, um, you know, every president since Nixon has said this, but it's, it's a myth. That's a nay? A big time. Our other economists agreed. Energy independence makes for a good soundbite. But not good policy. It's just an international market, and worrying about having stuff only produced from within our borders is just a fallacy. So no-go on energy independence. Let's keep rolling with a couple of quick hits. What do you got, Lee? Right. So, Stephanie, there were a few things our economists all agreed on. Number one? Bernie Sanders' proposal to tax carbon. Every economist in the room is going to say yay. Uh, yep. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So just about every economist in the world agrees that a carbon tax is a good idea. Under a carbon tax, fossil fuel producers pay a price on every ton of carbon their product is going to release. And so the result is that coal and oil and gas get more expensive, people consume less, and carbon emissions decline. Sounds like a simple idea. It sounds like a really simple idea, and it is, economically speaking. But so far, it's been politically toxic. Well, maybe that's because it's called a tax. Yeah, that probably doesn't help things. Okay, so our economists love carbon taxes. What else? Let's stick with Sanders for a second. He has said this on more than one occasion. I do not support fracking. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So that's Ian Lang from the Colorado School of Mines. He and the other three economists agreed that banning fracking would be a bad idea. His basic argument was the negative impacts of fracking are local, but the benefits from more natural gas production are national. Rob Godby jumped in to elaborate. Certainly there are significant costs to the local areas, but we can work out the, the techniques necessary, the regulation to make that 
to mitigate those problems. And at the same time, you know, it's natural gas that's kept electricity pricing low, and that's probably what's going to bridge us to, if we want a, a carbon-reduced future, that gets us there without really uh, worrying about the reliability of our grid. So I'm definitely an A. Sanders vowed ban fracking got a resounding no. A big fat no. From all of our energy economists. So Lee, was there anything else that they agreed on? Yeah, so I asked our panelists about Wyoming Governor Matt Mead's proposal to double down on coal. Obviously, deciding what that means requires some interpretation, but they all agreed that from a variety of angles, it's probably a bad idea. Chuck Mason argued that if Wyoming is going to double down on any fossil fuel, it should double down on natural gas and the pipelines to transport it. Rob Gottney took a little bit of a different approach, and he addressed coal markets, both foreign and domestic. It's, it's, it's hard not to ignore the trends in coal. Um, you know, that's just a, a bet that looks really bad. I think what we really need to do is look for alternatives. Coal isn't going anywhere soon. It's still going to be a huge industry in the state for decades to come. But I think we really want to look at what the next, what our future is. Okay, so whatever doubling down means for you, that's a no. So to recap, we are yes on a carbon tax, sort of yes on giving $30 billion to coal communities, and big no's on banning fracking and energy independence. What else have we got, Lee? Well, let's stick with the coal theme here for a minute. We asked our panelists about a bunch of coal-related policies because, as you know, Wyoming is the country's top coal-producing state. So first up. Republican candidates have called for a repeal of the Clean Power Plan, Obama's signature climate change rule that would curb carbon emissions from power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants. Which, of course, means burning less coal. So it will come as a surprise to almost no one that Wyoming really doesn't like this rule. It's one of the 27 states suing to have it overturned. And state political leaders were very happy when the Supreme Court stayed the rule earlier this year until all the legal challenges to it can be heard. So what did our economists think about repealing the Clean Power Plan? Here's Rob Godby. I would be in favor of scrapping this for something much simpler like a carbon tax. I think that this rule is is far too specific, far too legal. And the only reason we have it is because Congress can't pass a law these days. And so you had to do this by executive action with existing legislation that was never meant to control a problem like this. Man, economists really love to talk about taxing carbon. (laughs) They sure do. So back to the policy proposal for this round. Remember, it's repealing the clean power plan. We had three yays and one vote that was somewhere in between yay and nay. Like Rob Godby, the other panelists said that the rule is not the right way to address carbon emissions They unanimously agreed that a carbon tax, there's that carbon tax again, would be better. But they all said we're already on the way to meeting the clean power plan's emissions targets. As Ian Lang put it, This is much ado about nothing. If you look at where the power sector is going, we'll meet the clean power plan without doing any policies pretty soon. So this is ridiculous to try to fight this. It's just lawyers making some money. So I don't know if we can say our energy economists think it's entirely necessary to repeal the clean power plan, but I don't think they'd be too upset if it were to happen. (laughs) No, I don't think so. So one last coal policy. Wyoming Governor Matt Mead has invested considerable state dollars in research and development for clean coal and carbon utilization technologies. 
basically a way to keep using coal and to deal with the CO2 emissions. For example, the new integrated test center in Gillette, which the state is spending $15 million to build. Now, in theory, researchers will use the test center to figure out new ways to use carbon dioxide coming out of the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants. So we asked our economists, is spending state funds on coal technology good policy? And I have to say, I was guessing that there was going to be unanimous support for this because economists tend to agree that research is a good use of money. Uh, But Stephanie was wrong about that. I was definitely wrong. Uh, It was an even split. Ian Lang weighed in for the yays. Well, A, I guess I'm not a resident of the state of Wyoming, so if you guys want to use your money for that, doesn't bother me. Secondly, you clearly have lots of potential gain from increased use of carbon capture and storage or some other sort of technique that will capture CO2 and reuse it because then people will use products that bring out CO2. Um, There's a pretty bad track record of those so far and they're not getting any better. So um, yeah, you know, it's a maybe a one in 10 shot, but if it works out, great. And Tim Fitzgerald from Texas Tech weighed in for the nays on spending money on carbon technology. I, I am deeply ambivalent about how the people of Wyoming choose to spend their own funds. Uh, I tend to think that public expenditures for primary research into big and important problems, uh, like the ability to capture carbon, uh, is, is a good investment. Uh, but I kind of think this one is is a little bit bigger problem than is likely to get solved with a small state-level investment. Uh, just to give you some context on this, if this were a federal proposal uh, from a presidential candidate, I'd probably support it. Okay, so when it comes to whether Wyoming should be spending its money on coal research and development, not a lot of optimism that it will work, but some disagreement about whether it's worth it anyways. After we got through our list of energy policy proposals from presidential hopefuls, we opened up things to audience questions, and the conversation drifted away from the yay-nay format towards the bigger economic issues that an energy-dependent state like Wyoming is facing. And our economists had some pretty interesting things to say about that. So one of the questions that came up was, are there short-term ways to diversify the economy? Here's Rob Godby. I mean, the answer is really no. Um, you know, economic uh, development is easy to say and hard to do. The, the unfortunate thing is in Wyoming in particular, we just don't have alternative high-paying jobs that these people could move into. And it's part of the problem of just Wyoming as a state. So we asked the question earlier about who's been here in the 19, in, was here in the 1980s. I was. And I remember the conversation at the time. What we need is diversification. And that, uh, that had real traction for maybe a couple of years. And then it just sort of, and we, lo- we lost that thread. And we kind of let that go. Basically, what we need to find are things that aren't highly correlated with energy markets. And then there were some interesting comparisons to how another region, the Pacific Northwest, diversified its economy during times of change. I was on sabbatical in, uh, at Oregon State, Corvallis, many years ago, right about the time the spotted owl phenomenon was taking root and lots of loggers in Western Oregon were out of work like that. And it was a pretty similar sort of a phenomenon. And the way that Oregon dealt with that was they found a way to get those individuals who had been displaced 
into alternative training. So they subsidized education at junior colleges and at the four-year institutions within, within the state. It's not a short-term patch. It's not going to happen within the next few months, but it's a solution. It's a way forward that offers a ray of hope where, frankly, I suspect right now there's not much sun shining. Tim Fitzgerald agreed. Along the point of, of the loggers in the Northwest, I mean, I, I came from the Northwest and remember that time fairly vividly. And I think the realization for a lot of people who lived and bled and died in the timber industry, they realized that the, the, the guys who were employed and, and the women who were employed in that industry were actually highly skilled. And they just had to kind of get out of the mentality of being in the timber industry and then think about ways to apply their talents elsewhere. He compared the situation to what's happening in Gillette. So is that the path forward for Wyoming, investing in worker retraining, convincing people to become entrepreneurs? Well, yeah, so that was my question. If diversifying the economy is the answer, building and attracting new industries, who's responsible for that? Is it the federal government, the states, the private sector, regular people? Who is responsible for encouraging economic diversification? There's a lot of of sighing on stage right now. After a very long second, Rob Godby weighed in. Let me say that I think that we do have to take a role as a government in economic diversification in the state because, uh, you know, if it were just simply markets and cost competition and low taxes, we wouldn't have any problem. I mean, we've got a pretty low tax, but the problem is all those other things. We have a small market. It's hard to, to attract businesses. We, we're basically a one-horse show. So I think that really we do have to take a proactive stance. So if we had asked the question a little differently and instead framed it as a policy proposal like we did in the beginning, the policy might have been something like, we need government intervention to diversify the economy. So far, we've got one in the yay camp. Chuck Mason went next, and he sort of disagreed with the premise of my question, but answered anyway. This, this isn't really an economic question, um, as much as it is a, a political question or kind of a, a moral or ethical question. But I think, I think the essence of this is, you know, kind of what do we expect from, from our government? What do we want them to do for us? Do we want them to promote uh, the future for our society? And if you think the answer is no, we should stop funding the university in K-12 education. But if you think the answer is yes, then I think we need to start looking for things. I think we need to seriously look at things that are truly uh, a measure of diversification, diversification, truly things that are not correlated with the old ways of doing business. I'm going to tally that in the yes camp, because it sounds like he doesn't think it's all on individuals. Tim Fitzgerald went last with an answer that I think lies more on the no side. And for that, he took us to Texas, where he spoke recently at an oil and gas conference. And they said, well, it's just nothing like the 80s. I said, well, why is that? So, well, because we've managed to diversify our economy. Well, how did you do that? Well, we managed to attract businesses who wanted to come to Texas for a whole bundle of things, not just one thing, not just low taxes, not just clean air, not just excellent rattlesnake hunting opportunities. <laughs> Whatever else you got, right? It's a whole bundle of things that uh, attract people. And that's the trick. There is no silver bullet. It's probably going to take a, a whole variety of ideas to come up with that bundle rather than one person saying, this is what, we're, this is what we need to do. We need to do X, and that's going to solve our problem. It's probably going to be a, 
a more diverse set of uh, ideas and people who are going to help diversify that economy and, and make it more stable. And with that, we ended the panel. <laughs> wow, that was a lot of information. It was definitely a lot of information. But the good news is, Lee, you've been keeping track, right? Uh, yeah. So let's sum things up with a rundown of the policies. Let's start with those that had majority support. So starting with agree. Uh, agree and also mostly agree. In that column, we have a give money to coal communities to help them transition away from coal, institute a carbon tax, and repeal the clean power plan. Disagree? Yeah, unanimous disagreement with proposals to ban fracking, doubling down on coal, and pursuing energy independence. And then, of course, there are those for which there was neither clear agreement or disagreement. Right. Investing in clean coal and carbon utilization technology and government assistance to diversify the economy. Of course, this is just an exercise in energy hypotheticals because the election is far from over and these proposals are just proposals for now. But don't you feel better knowing just a little bit about what some of the candidates had to say? Absolutely. I vote yay. Thanks to our panelists for participating and to Planet Money for giving us the idea. I'm Stephanie Joyce with Wyoming Public Radio. And I'm Lee Patterson with Inside Energy. Until 2020. When we come back, we'll learn about a unique effort in Laramie to develop a seed library. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Lately, it seems like seed libraries are sprouting up all over Wyoming. At least four public libraries that usually lend books will soon lend seeds, too. You plant them at home, grow them, and when they produce seeds of their own, you return those seeds to the library for the next guy. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, Wyoming's seed library boom comes as some states have been cracking down on them. Laramie gardener Amy Fluitt admits it. She's a bit of a hoarder. I take up a huge amount of the space in my refrigerator with seeds. <laughs> it's an embarrassment. And I, I hide them in the back so my family doesn't realize how much space it takes up. She stores seeds in the fridge to trick them into thinking it's winter until she's ready to plant them. So you just keep them cool and dry and they'll, most of them will live for quite a long time. And then um, when you want to germinate them, that's when you start getting them moisture. Today, Fluid is getting ready to teach a seed starting workshop at the grand opening of the High Plains Seed Library in Albany County, the first of its kind in Wyoming. Campbell, Goshen, and Sheridan are right behind. Fluid says people think it's impossible to grow things in Wyoming's cold, arid climate, but... We can grow a lot of crops here, our cool season crops, that are hard to grow in hotter climates. We don't tend to have a lot of the disease problems that you have with the high humidity. Um, we have a lot of great sunlight. The biggest challenge is the short growing season, and that, Fluitt says, is where seed libraries come in. Jenny Thompson works on agriculture programs at the University of Wyoming and is co-teaching the workshop. She says plants grown from seeds collected in this climate are better adapted to survive in it. As whatever survived, the plants that survived and grew the best were the ones you're saving seeds from. So just over time, automatically, you're selecting for certain characteristics like cold hardiness or short season or long season or certain sized fruit. 
I read an interesting story about a man in Siberia who had done this with watermelon. That's librarian Cassandra Hunter. The High Plains Seed Library is her brainchild. And he started out with these tiny, tiny watermelons, but after I think it was seven or eight generations, he's growing kilo-sized watermelon in Siberia, and it was all because of his seed-saving practices. So it is not an impossible dream to grow really great watermelon in Laramie. To get all this going, Hunter took donations from seed companies, and volunteers repackaged them minus trademark labels. She says once the community starts returning seeds, in a few years the library will be stocked with seeds adapted to high-altitude gardens. But Hank Uden with the Wyoming Department of Agriculture says there are rules. A few states, to my understanding, have been restricting the seed libraries. Others, such as in Wyoming, were okay with the seed library as long as uh, it's done within the um, guidelines of the state laws and the Federal Seed Act. He says states like Pennsylvania have shut down seed libraries unless they could prove every seed had not been trademarked by a company like Monsanto or Burpee that engineers seeds. These companies expend billions of dollars towards uh, developing seed varieties and they like to trademark those, of course, those seed varieties with, with a name. Uden says even in Wyoming, seed libraries can't use special plant names. He says a theoretical example might be heirloom tomato. If someone was to propagate that same tomato and then take that seed from those tomatoes and then provide it into the seed library, the, uh, they can no longer use the name of heirloom on that. It can only simply be referenced as tomato seed. Uden says of all the new seed libraries in Wyoming, he's only heard from Albany County, and that worries him. He says they could inadvertently distribute invasive weed seeds. But librarian Hunter says she's been watching the struggles of libraries in other states and says Wyoming's rules aren't so bad. That's probably one of the benefits of living in Wyoming is that it's a little, there's less bureaucracy in a way. We kind of have a little more freedom to maneuver around than some other states. Another benefit of less red tape? getting the seed library open in time for spring planting. All right. Ready? Seed library is open! Hunter cuts the ribbon, and people start sorting through drawers of seed packets in an old card catalog cabinet. Gardener Dan Bremer already has a stack, mostly of hot peppers. I got one packet of jalapenos, one packet of habaneros, one packet of the paprika. Got to get some herbs. I know my wife wants some flowers, some hollyhock. And the great thing is, no due dates and no overdue fines. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of the program, it will be available on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just look under the news section and click on Open Spaces. You can also sign up for our podcast on the website or on iTunes. If you have ideas for stories or interviews, you can also send them to us through the website. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to follow us on social media through our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and all of our reporters are on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.